So welcome, folks, to, I believe this is episode four of Mentioning Dispatches. Uh, we're not so far into the season yet that we've gotten out of sequence or, or completely screwed this up just yet. Uh, but there's still time. There's still time. I have faith that we will mess up the sequencing on on podcasts at some point this uh, this season. And so tonight, uh, look, if you're going to talk about Napoleonic stuff, there's, there's two guys you're calling in, and that's Gary and that's Jim. And so welcome, Gary. Hey, how's everybody doing tonight? And, and welcome back, Jim. Ahoy, ahoy. Look, I, 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 I hearken back to the first season of Mention and Dispatches when I felt a little bad about completely ambushing Jim with, uh, with one of our Napoleonic podcasts when I opened up with, hey, Jim, the Napoleonic Wars. Why do we care? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? I kind of believe yeah. it or not, I managed to stun Jim into silence there for a second. It was kind of funny. Um, but- <laughs> he, he dropped off the call. Click. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screw this. Crank call. Crank call. <laughs> That that said, it it was actually a very good podcast in in that Jim was able to articulate a lot of great reasons why we should care about the Napoleonic Wars. And yeah, and we're it's not like dive... those conflicts we didn't fight in the eighties, after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did. So I, I think Gary's taking a swipe at me with that one <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> don't don't worry. There's a chance you might see that happen tomorrow. Yeah. It's entirely not impossible. So there's a lot to cover with the Napoleonic Wars. There's there's an incredible depth and breadth of material going back the entire history of, of wargaming uh, all the way back to the original Prussian Kriegspiel and working our way forward from there. We're going to try and narrow the focus a little bit tonight and not just talk the Napoleonic Wars in general, but, but sort of try and focus in on particular aspects of it. And so for tonight's discussion, we really wanted to talk about the Napoleonic Wars at the operational level, so the, the campaign level. And one of the reasons why this one's sort of uh, one of the first topics in the barrel, quite frankly, Jim, that's the area where you operate a bunch, not just with the snappy nappy thing you're doing on Saturday Night Fights right now as we're recording this, but the play-by-forum Kriegspiels that you run for a bunch of the, the Dragoons and some of our associated friends are very much at that campaign level. And so you, you know, the, the 1809 campaign in Bavaria is a, a favorite of yours uh, among others. And so I thought that operational level might be a good place to kind of start. And so with that in mind, as you think about operational campaigns, operational level warfare in the Napoleonic Wars, before we dig too much into the games, if you're just looking at the history of the campaigns what are the things that really matter at the operational level in the napoleonic wars and and why is it that they're important and so jim we'll start with you and let gary jump in when when he feels like it there sure where do you start i think number one is fog of war um, I think that you absolutely must model the fog of war that existed in early 19th century. Well, really, all combat, even up to the, the First World War, even into the Second. Uh, my son, I am pleased to report, I didn't know this until just today, my uh, son, for his honors graduation from middle school, is doing a report on the Battle of Gettysburg, and uh, his partner in the project is doing the causes of civil war and the aftermath of Gettysburg, but he's doing the battle itself. And so I sat him down just as an introductory uh, to watch Ken Burns' Civil War, the, the doc, that episode. And it re- when you hear the statement, which you know to be true, that while the Union didn't know where Lee was going as it kept consistently trying to block the approach to Washington, 
Lee didn't know where the Union Army was because obviously Jeb Stewart had gone off and done his stunt. Um, <laughs> joyriding. Yeah, joyriding. Well, and, and obviously he had just recently been chastised by Lee for other activities. Like, I'll show you. I could do a really good raid. I'll do a really good raid. You'll see. I'm going to bring you a wagons. I'll bring you wagons. Or you could tell me where Meade's army is. That would probably be better. That applied 60 years or 50 years earlier during the Napoleonic Wars. The understanding of where an army was and where an army wasn't. We were talking about this on uh, on the show with uh, Dan and, and with Gary uh, just last week, talking about the Battle of Jena Auerstadt. Napoleon thinks he's fighting the entire Prussian army at Jena. And in fact, he's not. That's Davu, a couple miles to the north. Any game that doesn't model that fog of war is wrong or is giving you is cheating because you're, you're missing out on the one thing that you really have to understand the incredible darkness in which they're operating. I think my second biggest is always understanding the logistical challenges of getting an army in that era of that size to the battlefield and getting them to fight. One of the things that is very, very hard to get across to the people that play the online Kriegspiels or just the regular uh, Flight of the Eagle Kriegspiels is if Gary and I are opposed to each other and our armies are maneuvering, if Gary doesn't want to fight me, I probably can't make him. And there's a couple of ways I can, sort of, but in terms of a set-piece battle in the Napoleonic period, they're usually by mutual agreement, okay, we're going to fight. And the reason for that is... And, and this always blows people away when in one of the things you do in Flight of the Eagle is in order to maneuver your troops, you have to draw out a line on a map that more or less accurately reflects the length of that unit in column marching on a map. And they realize how flipping big they are, not just the men, but their their logistics, their supply wagons, their supernumeraries all that other stuff. Getting that to the battle, getting it organized, getting it ready to fight was no small matter. One of my favorite scenes in my favorite movie, Waterloo, is the mo the day before the battle. Watching the British army get ready in sight of the French. The French are right there. You know, you got guys, You, can't, you they could see them. They shoot at They could have shot at him. Well, they do. They do eventually shoot at him. You know, they're shaving, making breakfast, talking about last night, getting their horses ready, getting their swords ready, getting their muskets ready. That logistical challenge in a 19th century battle, if you don't show me the fog of war, if you don't show me the challenge of those logistics, even in the simplified way that Flight of the Eagle does it, uh, I you're not you're not going to sell me. It's much, much more complex than it is. And it challenges our expectations of warfare. Yeah. Before we start tackling how some of those things are handled in games, Gary, agree, disagree on sort of where those things are in level of importance at the operational warfare level in the Napoleonic Wars? Well, I, I mean, obviously, I agree with everything that Jim just said. I will point out that there's kind of three different uh, approaches to wargaming in the context that we're talking about, regardless of topic, right? In this case, we're talking about Napoleonics. And I'm not talking about strategic, tactical, and operational. I'm talking about miniatures role-playing uh, in which I include the Kriegspiel as a, as a subset yes. um, and board war games. Um, and the the miniatures is tends to not handle operational particularly well. Um, but Kriegspiels can handle whatever, you know, it's it's a role-playing game, right? You can you can do whatever you want in a Kriegspiel. Uh, 
and, and whatever everybody and Jim all, has. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I mean by that is you can decide, hey, this is going to be more of a tactical thing, or this is going to be more of an operational thing, or you can just freaking play Empires in Arms. <laughs> and which is, you know, it, a lot of people want to play that with a moderator, yeah. um, making it, you know, kind of a pseudo Kriegspiel. So, but but obviously I agree with that. Jim Jim's point that it, it's really difficult to to have a battle with an enemy that is unwilling to fight uh, stretches all the way back to ancient times, right? That that was true in ancient times as well. the The battle was very often a uh, a thing that both competing armies agreed to do tacitly, right? They show up, okay, yeah, we'll fight here or, or whatever. This ceases. This this becomes less true as uh, armies begin to be more effective on the move. I think you start to see this in in U.S. Civil War, but it's it's and and, and in the Napoleonic period too, probably a little bit where armies can. A good example of this is Asper Nestling, right? Napoleon's crossing the Danube with his army in the middle of his crossing and Archduke Charles attacks him, right? Na Napoleon is caught literal pants down with, with part of his army across the, the Danube, part of his army on an island in the middle of the Danube and the rest of his army on the other side. Um, and he manages to fight his way out of it in a, in a non-route way. Um, but that's a, a you know a counterexample to what Jim is talking about, where you know normally the terrain aside, um, those two armies are not going to fight. Uh, okay. So that 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 ability of, uh, of the, the time and effort that it takes to set up the battle, to set up an, an effective attack, is generally enough time for an unwilling opponent to get away. And fog of war, of course, is kind of the, the constant uh, element of warfare in general, pre-modern warfare in this case. Well, I mean, it's modern warfare, but you know what I mean? It's before airplanes, right? It's before aerial recon. Fog of war changes once you have aerial recon, right? Um, once things get mechanized, it changes a lot. Well, yes, but but the, the nature of fog of war changes, right? Yes. Uh, but in this case, right, I mean, whether, whether you're talking about American Civil War or, or Napoleonic, fog of war has to be an element in a game design because it's an essential part of the battlefield experience of those commanders. And what is the game trying to do, if not to put you in the decision space of the historical commanders, right? That is generally what a good war game is trying to accomplish. And if it doesn't show you fog of war at all, if it's just everybody's omniscient, then that's going to, that's going to, that's going to feel maybe a little unsatisfying, right? Minimal. Yeah. Yeah. To start tackling some of those in the ways in which some games approach each of those different facets. I'm, I'm going to start with Fog of War because folks have sort of heard me talk about this before. One of the challenges you run into with Fog of War in board wargaming is that as soon as you open the box, a lot of the Fog of War is done, right? You know what's on the counter sheet. You're not adding forces that were not printed in the box. Now, obviously, you don't have to use everything on the counter sheet, but, but the known universe of possibilities is there as soon as you crack the string. There are games that tell you it is against the rules to examine the game to look at the other side's pieces. Well, I think that's a bit of an unrealistic rule. <laughs> but there are games that actually say that. Well, 
and there there are games that don't allow you to inspect stacks. So there are stacks oh, that's, out there. That's and, very and common. You, yeah, that that's pretty common. There are games out there that I've seen a variety of games, especially hypotheticals, where they almost work on sort of a mini style point by system where you get to assemble your forces, but the other guy doesn't know what it is you've assembled. But that said, you know, if if I'm pushing counters around on a map, I kind of know where the counters are, right? If I'm the opponent, some of that broad scale fog of war, Jim, that you were talking about, it is really hard to do. And it, it's goddamn impossible on a minis game, right? There's the minis. You know, that's sort of, I know where they are. I, but, I'm sorry. Did you not join us on Saturday? No, I. <laughs> Philistine. Yes. And I know you did. I know you were there. You came was, in. You were very nice. You visited. You I, spent I time happy. away from from other chores, tasks. And I won't say it was easy, but we did manage to introduce a significant level of Fog of War in our Snappy Nappy 1809 campaign to the point that both the players, Jeff Hauria and Ron Hauria, playing Francis I and Napoleon, couldn't see what was going on in a battle on a table they could otherwise see. And their players were screaming either hurrah or oh no, and they didn't know why. Now, let's let's clarify for the podcasting audience that is not watching Saturday Night Fights. What and, who, and who is that? Who are those who are those people? I want names. Yeah, let's just take a moment to chastise those Philistines and then we will point out that Saturday Night Fights is done on a computer. You hit a button, you hide the table. That's a yes. little harder to do when it's like six dudes around the dining room on a Saturday afternoon with some beer and pretzels and a war game. Yeah, I mean, and and miniatures games have over the years attempted this. Um, one of the ways they get at it is by rule writing. It's sort of an inverse, right? Um, Shaco, for example, you have to draw your your orders on the map and follow those orders on the map. Mm-hmm. You can't break away from them. Uh, some others, notably the Two Fat Lardy system, Le Fou Sacré, actually used blinds that could spot. Uh, so they attempted to do it. But your point is basically well taken. And let's also acknowledge this because it must needs be. Actually, Blucher has Fog of War too. I should say. Uh, you're supposed to put out a card that is the national flag of the army. And only when it is spotted, do you flip that card over and place that unit on the table. So you know that there's a unit there, but you don't know whether it's a horse or whether it's a gun or whether it's infantry. But I I still think, what's this? Are there dummies? Uh, There are no dummies in Blucher, which is an interesting choice that Sam made. There are dummies in Le Fou Sacre. I I will say, I I find the the lack of dummy markers like that not non-offensive right the the, part of the reason that you know there is something there is there's a couple you know there's ten thousand dudes walking around kicking up dust making some noise whatever it may be it's hard to make that happen with nothing right what what if if you don't have something marching around out there, making all that noise, kicking up all that dust, terrorizing the locals, it, it could be wagon trains. It could be your elite infantry corps, right? It, it But there's got to be something present out there somewhere to give off that sort of battlefield signature. To have the cavalry guy two hilltops away looking over there going, well, there's something over there, but I'm not getting close enough to find out. Well, so- we, well look, I mean, we there's two things I would say. First of all, in the back of the British Kriegspiel, the 1844, there's actually a famous spotting table of what you can see at how many meters. Yeah. You know, what a man with good eyesight can see. It's like, you can see that it's infantry or cavalry. You can see what unit it is. But we also have the famous scene at the end of Waterloo where Napoleon is constantly looking over to the east and trying to see, 
are they French or are they Prussian? Are they French or are they Prussian? And that's he can't tell. You know, Napoleon, can't his guys can't. Napoleon knows it's that's that's yeah, why right. I love Eventually that. Napoleon, Napoleon says knows it's the no, it's the Prussians. It's not. Yeah, it's, never mind. It's the Prussians. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which leads, of course, to the Great Blucher Charge. But let me also say, I'm being precious. I'm ultimately being precious for two reasons. Number one, we're not talking about tactical games, and most miniatures games are tactical. Yeah. Strangely enough, Snappy Nappy isn't. It is a operational game. It's, it's built to be operational. This is the entirety of the 1809 campaign we're playing, not just a battle in it. So, yeah. And it makes a lot of abstractions. But number two, why do we play miniatures? Well, I, just because we love them. They're gorgeous. We want to see our minis. Don't hide them from us. That's exactly not the point. Show me my print. How many hours do, do, do we poor schmuck spend researching and, and filing and painting and you know, basing and all this. What now? I'm gonna hide it. Screw you. Yeah, so, you're, so you're yeah. No, I'm thinking. How long do you schmucks spend painting and basing? <laughs> <laughs> I've spent five minutes painting miniatures in the last ten years. So yeah, yeah no, no, no. And, and you're so, five minutes so, ahead of me. I've spent twenty minutes unboxing pre-painted miniatures. No, it was, and it was Patty Griffith. It was Patty Griffith who said the greatest mistake war gamers ever made was fetishizing the miniature. Uh, because it it took you know it, it became more the object than the game itself. Oh, I'm I'm so using that from now on. You miniatures fetishists. Oh yeah, and you got Doctor uh, G in your back oh, pocket. I'm using that. You know, and it's and it he felt that very and he said I will take second to none in my love of toy soldiers as a form of art and craft. But we made a mistake as gamers when they when this segment of the gaming community fetishized it. Um, yeah. So all you know, well, all the totally arts and crafts projects. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Oh, totally. Well, of course, of course they are. Of course they are. And and by the way, some of them are just ravishingly cool. I mean, sure. it's just I just adore them. And some are sloppy as hell, but that's okay. But they are ultimately game pieces that we want to see. So we don't play operationally, and we certainly don't want to hide these things we've invested half our lives and all of our treasure into. But at the operational level, when you start talking fog of war, um, again, going back to Gary's question about, you know, are, are there dummies out there like in Blucher? I, you know, the idea of, hey, there's something over that hill and now you get somebody who can spot the card and you flip it over and you go, ah, never mind, it's nothing. It's not nothing. Like something gave off that signature that somebody had to go investigate. And so the idea of not having dummies there does it intuitively make sense to me. I'm just... I'm I'm curious, you know, like a hex encounter war game, how how well or how effectively you can put some sort of fog of war in there, given that I can see a stack of counters on the map. I know there's something there. Um, so so how much of what kind of questioning can you put in place? And 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 are there any any specific games out there you can think of that actually do it fairly well that that institute some of that fog of war that you know famously lent our our good buddy metal dog to to ask you during one creek spiel what the hell is going on (laughs) so we can of course start talking about the game system that i think was inevitably going to be mentioned in this show which is the campaigns of napoleon system from kevin zucker now, mm-hmm. I'm less familiar with this than I am with, say, the great campaigns of the American Civil War. But in, in this respect, at least, they have sort of a similar fog of war system. Now, it's optional in the case of great campaigns of the American Civil War. It's kind of built in in the case of campaigns of Napoleon. And that's that you don't put your units on the map. You put a leader marker on the map and move the leaders around. All the units are off map on a display that, that is not visible, ideally, to your opponent, Right. 
So yeah. you may see that there's, you know, you see two counters there. Is that one guy with a brigade of troops or is that like a whole, you know, several, two divisions, right? And that's a relatively low impact way to to introduce Fog of War into board wargaming. There are other approaches too. Kevin Zucker is a big fan of the counter sleds um, that he sells for, I think, for the Library of Napoleonic Battles more because that's a little less, got, got a little less Fog of War built into the system. Um, and those are, uh, for those who haven't seen them, they're, they're little stands that let you hold the counters upright such that the opponent sees the back of the stand. You can see what counters are actually on the stand. It, now, it you basically can't really... the counter into a block. Yeah, except that you can tell if the blocks, if the, if the sled doesn't have any pieces on it, right? Well, yeah. um, that's visible to you. So you have, you have like a, you can count pieces. Yeah, you um, can tell if it's one counter or four. Right. Well, you should never have four counters in that system. But uh, you, you do get the sense of, of, you know, not knowing exactly what you're facing. And another, just kind of a feature of the way that that series seems to work is you're not necessarily looking at one stack. You're looking at a formation of stacks. Yeah. And <laughs> among the things you don't know is where is the force massing in that concentration of, of troops? Um, so it actually works fairly well. And that's a system that, although a lot of people call it tactical, and it kind of is, it's really sits on the, the edge between tactical and operational. It's really grand tactical. Yeah. And, and I think it varies dramatically by the scenario. I that's mean, true, too. You know, certainly some of the introductory scenarios are tactical. You know, they're. Yeah. And they feel weird for it. I mean, because as the maneuver element yeah. of the brigade, you're what maneuvering around seven counters and you're it's like quatre okay here you are fight right, right. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly there's like Let's okay see. you got two forces and you're you know you're a couple hundred yards away from each other and there's really not a lot of of uh of operational decision but then when you back up one step right which is in the same game box you can get this sweeping game of maneuver on three or four maps or whatever it is now right and you run the risk, and it, it's an etern- it's a it is an evergreen among war gamers of all flavors. I uh, you know I'll well, I'll go to the eighteen oh nine campaign that we're fighting out for Snappy Nappy. I think I o- said this was the Bavaria campaign, the eighteen oh nine campaign. Is it okay with you that one of the big battles happens at the otherwise unknown village of Ow? AU yeah. is that okay? Because that's what's happening. You know, it it's not happening at Egmul. It's not happening at you know Roar or at any of the other places we know or at Teugenhausen. It's happening at this other village. Why? Because that's where the commanders took it. So when you open up that sweep, you open up this eternal question of should it be on rails or should I have the discretion to within the limits that the game imposes do what I think prudent and. So far, so good. But yeah, there's that you can get some really interesting outcomes in the Library of Napoleonic Battles with the bigger scenarios, especially um, Napoleon's Last Gamble, which I have said circumspectly, I do not prefer to Napoleon's Last Battles. Um, still a good game, but uh, it, the the map is certainly prettier. I won't dispute that for a minute. That's, it's, yeah, it's inarguable. It's a it's a it's a fascinating and it's a fascinating study. It really is. Now, I love the Napoleon's Last Battle map. For its time, it's great. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a great map. 
Is that but, 76? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, this, it's this, pretty, we actually looked at it on a show a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's a pretty attractive map for 1976. Yeah. Other yeah, than the, the starting positions all being marked on the map, which kind of uglies it up. But oh well, and well, the just to not to go too far with that, but the fact that they're the starting positions for the scenarios. Yes. Not for the grand campaign, which is the joy of that game. You know, I, I the idea of playing any of those four scenarios individually just does not in any way appeal to me. But that campaign game, I will play with you. That that would go with me to my desert island. Um, so, but the point being, yeah, it does ugly it up. But fast forward uh, forty years, and I suddenly see this other thing from Kevin Zucker called Napoleon's Last Pass. I look at that map, and I go, "Ooh, that's pretty. It's very uh, shiny. Yeah, it's shiny." like and 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 it's great and it gives you a lot of operational choices but you will see hinky decisions i think one of the things i prefer about uh the napoleon's last gamble though is the is the newer iteration of the system which is the same system right it's got the same push-pull crt uh but it adds an an additional relatively thin layer of chrome on top of it okay Mm -hmm. and for those who don't know one of the things that that comes with that chrome is vedettes and uh does the original uh, the original have the re- repulse combat in it too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I, th- I don't think vedettes are in there. And vedettes nope, nope. are kind of uh, are kind of the counterbalance for fog of war because you end up sending out these these units and these like very small cavalry detachments as scouts to try and get a bead on what enemy forces you are facing so, to, so that you can inspect those enemy stacks. And this is oh, actually mean, how it works in... You mean the overrun bounce rule? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's called a re- actual repulse in the current... I, I think it is too. I'm just trying to... Th- I, that's one of those things that I, I, I have this habit, which I'm sure you would never like if we were to ever sit down and play a game. I named things operationally so I can remember them. So and, you're talking when, when you're moving a unit and yeah. it, it tries to overrun and, and it fails yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about yeah no that actually isn't in napoleon's last battles okay and that's a that's another thing that features into fog of war too because maybe you maybe you try that uh that stunt uh based on your lack of knowledge of what enemy unit well, you're facing well it's important to remember napoleon's last battles doesn't have fog of war right at all that's, that's know, what so i mean yeah, yeah so it's no and and yeah and that chrome is that i think the the thing that most people miss to me Napoleon's Last Battles when people criticize it and I'm not saying you are I'm just you know my observation no not particularly is is that most people criticize Napoleon's Last Battle for the same reason they criticize Monopoly you've not been playing the game you know most you know most people who play Monopoly play by all sorts of crazy rules that aren't in the game um, that tend to lengthen it inordinately and unnecessarily same thing with Napoleon's Last Battles except they always ignore command control which is critical when you play that game with command control you don't get the goofy crazy units running all over the place you can't and it also has i think and you'd be the better expert here than because you have the broader spectrum on it it's got the cruelest supply rule i've ever seen in any game ever uh basically at the end of day one at the end of each campaign day if a unit of any size cannot track a line of supply it's dead uh i i've killed entire core that i've till i've killed entire core that way Especially at the operational level. Yep. But and, that's, and, that's like not every turn, right? What are the no, turns? No. Two hours? Uh, yeah, that's right. No, it's oh, yeah. every game day. You know, every game day you check as we go to night, you know. So, no, I, I, I think that that, and that to me would certainly be a third thing I would add is to me the operational games have to, they at least have to nod at supply, you know, because so much of what, and, and it's, who calls it this first? 
it isn't even so much line of supply, it's line of communication. You know, it's not just supply, it's how do I get home? Yeah. And a whole lot of Napoleonic warfare hinges around, wait a minute, he's going to be on top of my loke and I can't have that. Mm -hmm. So now we'll fight. Or, oh my God, he's going to threaten my loke, so I've got to pivot. Frankly, the reason, the well, the reason the, the allies are willing, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons the allies are willing to attack at Austerlitz, they think they can cut off Napoleon's loke. They're, 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 they think they've got that, so no. As the Dragoons proudly charge into their eighth season of Mentioned in Dispatches, we'd like to pause and thank those Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Treb Curry, Staggerwing, Patrick Mullen, Mike Quigley, Hethwell Wargames, Patrick Garrity, Robert, Kevin Bertram, and Joseph Knoll for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and enabling us to bring you the best wargaming content we can. You, too, can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchairdragoons. Uh, but your question, sorry, was about Fog of War and uh, you know how it gets pulled off. I, I like both systems, both the campaign system and the, the libraries. The only thing I will observe is I hate the counter sleds. I hate them. And they don't really I, fit. They don't really fit correctly into the hexes. No, they don't. And I've griped about this for years. I know I've griped about it with with the both of you. For whatever reason, Kevin, I get the hunch that my that that I revere Kevin Zucker. Don't ever get that twisted. But I think the old hippie, because you know he never shrink wraps his games. I've asked him about this. That's <laughs> deliberate. The old hippie doesn't shrink wrap his games, and he doesn't print enough counters to cover when he, when he uses. Uh, flag counters to cover units to provide fog of war. I, I've yet to see one of his games, and I think I've got them all that has enough of those to cover it. So you got to rob Peter to pay Paul. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm doing that anyway. Most I have a, shoulder on camera. <laughs> I have a unified counter set for for the entire series, so so I, I got that covered. That. How did you do but that? I just got a counter tray. Well, a, a, one of those plastic trays, and I pulled the you know the all the various mark, common markers out and put them all in one tray. And there's plenty now of everything. Okay, just for the record, I want to tell you a very quick story. My buddy Doug and I. One time we were at Origins, and what's the name of that uh, bar restaurant? If you don't go to the the food court, there's that restaurant that's in that same direction. It's clearly a college type bar that's got an outside and an inside part, and they always play music too freaking loud. You're not is it talking the, about Barley's. Barley's, Barley's is, is across. Oh, it's the off the street. It's off the street. It's behind. You go one block uh, further that same Oh, way. there's a whole strip of bars over there. There's a big fancy. What's that? There's You're talking about the stuff on Front there. Street? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the stuff behind North Market, there's a whole exactly. strip of bars down there. And those are pretty, you know, it's a college town. So it's yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, so it, we're in one of those places. It was nicer. And we had this long table. And I told, I was sitting, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And we were talking about Memoir 44. And I mentioned to Doug that what I had done is taken all my Memoir 44 pieces from all the sets, because I've got, in order to do D-Day landings, I think I had to get six sets of memoir, and I had placed them into one container. I'm disappointed. I thought you were going to tell me you took all your memoir 44 stuff and threw it in the dumpster. Stop it. <laughs> he, he, if I had a photograph of the face Doug made, yeah. and he said, you are a filthy game component miscegenator. <laughs> I'm completely comfortable doing that. Brothers, because those are the two that are right back there. 
I Come. could not, I could not, could not. He said, I literally could not sleep at night knowing that on my shelf. <laughs> so I'm going to say to you, I could not sleep at night knowing all your lovely little clipped Napoleonic flags were all mixed together in That's one right. bin. In one big it, tray. It That's seriously absolutely. never even occurred to me. Because I've got, like you say, I've got them all. They're sitting right there, clipped into baggies. But the, the Austrian baggies from um, the coming storm are in a completely separate ba- box from the last success. Different. Do you See, think, I think it's you're... harder for Zucker to just print a counter sheet of nothing but flag markers for you know? Well, that's but, not a bad but, idea. A minute. By, that by itself is not a bad idea. I'd buy I'd buy them. I'd buy a sheet of each in a minute. Kevin, if you're listening, and there's no reason he would be, but Kevin, if you're listening, there's your. I've, there's there's your next plenty. Part of you just got to take them out of all the games, put them in one tray, and you're all set. There's plenty. Make a you campaign as you want. And I want to say that. That in terms of number of pieces, that that full campaign of Napoleon's Last Gamble probably has as many pieces in it that you'd need to cover as anything else. The only thing that should be of comparable size is really probably Leipzig, um, and I, there's plenty. But you gotta you gotta cannibalize all the games to to make them make there be plenty. But I figure if I'm not I'm never gonna get rid of those games. So. They're going with me. They're getting buried with me. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm completely okay with putting all the pieces together. Yeah, he says the thing for somebody that's that's a dabbler in the the in that realm where they're gonna play one or two of the games and then they're gonna end up selling. I could totally see keeping everything separated there, so you have complete sets of stuff to sell afterwards. I can't possibly fathom Jim parting with his library of Kevin Zucker games. So I see no reason why you couldn't go ahead and intermingle there, uh, much like Gary. Has has already done so i do that for all my game series that i am like totally 100 behind if i know i'm not gonna dump it um and a lot of what is on the shelf behind me falls into that category that's why it's on the shelf behind me yeah so your asl stuff <laughs> that's an exam that's got its own bookcase to be honest about it well <laughs> and, and, and it's funny jim to hear you say that there's absolutely no way in hell that you would ever mix components like that and yet you've got the rolling Plano case of commands and colors, Napoleonics that are all mixed together out of like 12 different boxes worth of CNC Napoleonics. Yeah, no, I, it's, it is funny. I, I don't know. Well, it's, it is. Well, for one thing, I didn't want to store that many boxes, to be honest. That's why I did it with ASL. Yeah. I, I just, it's too many boxes. And when you get it. And the other thing is it, that actually became a setup and takedown issue. Because, well, and I wrote about this in an article uh, when I did my review of the Epic Expansion. Yeah. <laughs> there was one unit, <laughs> one, that's at Austerlitz in the Le Grand Battles version of Austerlitz that only comes from one of the other boxes. Yeah. And so I said, so you're telling me if I'm setting up Austerlitz, I got to get one box from here, one box from here. No, 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 no. So merge it together. Oh, but, yeah, for Commands and Colors Napoleonics, Jesus. I think you've seen how I store my stuff. I just, yeah. I, everything goes in one bin, man. I got a bin for the French, bin for the Austrians, whatever. Yeah, I got, I got, my wife actually found this. It's a, uh, as you said, it's like a plano. It's actually, it's actually a tackle box is what mine is. Mm. And it's got shelves. It's got drawers that pull out. Ooh. And each drawer is a nation Ooh. sorted into unit types. Oh, yeah. Do you have yeah, special color-coded dice with them, too? Case. Yeah, j- oh, I bet, no, I actually, I was a little drunk one night, and I went on to eBay for some reason. <laughs> 
and somebody was selling those wooden those uh, uh hit those hidden valley was it hidden yeah. valley uh no it was um i forget who was selling them it was wasn't, valley something. wasn't hidden valley those are the ranch dressing people yeah <laughs> it might have been uh it was valley something it was valley game i think it was valley games valley, valley games. games there we go yeah and they had these lovely wooden dice they had them for ancients and they had them for napoleonics yeah. oh, and they yeah. were going out of business yeah and, and they were selling them, I think, for three fifty for did, eight did, of them. Did you buy four sets too? Four robot, oh, you please. Bought, you bought I more was, than four. I bought, I bought six sets. I bought four sets. Yeah, oh, yeah, I got plenty. Yeah, yeah, we got, we got just, we get our fistfuls of dice, just shove them in oh, our yeah. face. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you just like, stick them in your face and go. <sighs> oh. <laughs> Gary, Jim's rolling case of CNC Napoleonics looks like the kind of thing a car mechanic is going to roll up to your garage. (laughs) Anybody want to play Napoleonics? I'm ready for you. This this unit contains my commands and colors Napoleonics and this angle grinder. (laughs) Darn Skippy. That's that's the size operational napoleonic war games and tackle boxes yeah oh i go. got i've got a whole video series about about you containers you store your parts in so let's try and get off topic on on the logistics and supply issues here a little bit jim you mentioned the the whole idea of the logistical hassles in various napoleonic operational level activities right it, it it is no small feat to feed an army that large. That's just the food. Never mind the camp sanitation issues. Never mind the ammo distribution issues, right? The fact that you've got a wagon train full of shot and powder doesn't actually put shot and powder in individual dudes' hands. Nobody's going to make a war game out of that level of minutia, but you still need to account for moving all of those supplies around and taking care of that unit in the field. And so as you look at the operational level of Napoleonic warfare what are some games that that do a good job of of giving you an appropriate level of logistics considerations what are some that maybe go a little overboard in either direction of getting giving you too much or not giving you squat what are some that you can think of off the top of your head that, that well the the the, the, spot? the easy one is is flight of the eagle right i mean that's it's it is i you know is it my favorite game? It's certainly well. It depends how many people I got. If I got enough people to play it with, it's probably my favorite war game. It's your most mentioned one. It is. It is. I talk about it all constantly. And Doctor Rui, when he wrote it, started out with a very simple system that, and that's usually what we play. But if you go all the way out to volume three, it has an elaborate supply and logistics system that includes supplies per unit that apply includes how much they get back it allows for the establishment of depots it allows for casualties that go to hospital versus go lost to straggling versus dead um and you know he calculates all these things in it is it's nothing i've ever indulged in because i think it does to your point go too far but it's definitely there you could if you want it he's got it in fact he's got it so that if you really wanted to, you could build your own Napoleonic army. To he, he's got a an insert in in Flight of the Eagle three that is a if you wanted to create a hypothetical imagination campaign based on you know art <laughs> art Wolfia, you could build an army for it. You know what what would be its proportion of troops and what you would have to do to sustain it in terms of supply and logistics. So you can do that if you really want to do it. I would say that 
let me let me bust in here just to yeah. just to re, re, ask a, a super basic question that I know the answer to, but maybe people that don't follow us all the time and not aren't fanatics about this kind of stuff. No, Flight of the Eagle is is uh, I think a French I think it's a French game that is essentially a, a Kriegspiel engine. Would you? consider that an accurate assessment jim yes okay so it's it's not like a minis rule set it's a it's like well, a kriegspiel rule set specifically it's and it does in fairness to dr Wee, who of course i have a bit of a pimp for i admit i'm his hype man it does fit in with the eagle fights which is his miniatures game oh, which, that i did not know which parenthetically he designed with kip trexler and with a number of people who have built some of the better known um, Napoleonic miniature systems. So you can pull down from the flight of the Eagle into the Eagle fights. Yeah. So you maneuver the, you maneuver the armies in flight of the Eagle. And then when you're ready for the set piece battle, you drop down into Eagle fights. Right. That's incredibly hardcore. Yeah. I, 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 would I do that in my retirement? I just might, I might try it. But I will tell you, I would do it on a small campaign because can, can that's. Can we just pause and marvel for a moment at the guy that's in like three different running OCS campaigns talking about how hardcore it is that Napoleonic guys are playing? <laughs> well, technically, it's only two right now. It's not going to be three uh-huh. until Friday. Uh huh. So by the time people are listening to this, it'll be three plus your Europa. It, it's taken us three weeks to set the current one up. Have I told you that? Yeah. Plus, plus the Europa campaign, plus you know whatever plus, else. Plus you the got. Europa campaign. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's so, true. So the guy who's busy juggling multiple OCS games plus Europa is talking about the Napoleonic guys being hardcore. Europa's our light filler game. <laughs> That, so that's one that certainly has a very, very strong presence of that. There was a PC game, strangely enough, that is also a Kriegspiel that came out some years ago in the 1809 campaign, yes, I admit, that modeled it as well and, and modeled supply and logistics. Also, and what Zucker- was that called? Uh, it's by Matrix Games, and you're not thinking it's kind of glory, are you? Because that no, 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 no. Campaigns on the Danube. Oh, okay, very interesting. Yeah, I actually happen to know the designer a little bit. Um, it I'm is shocked. a. It is- Isn't that one like 15 years old at this point? Uh, it's got to be older than that. Yeah, I mean, it, Campaigns on the Danube's been around a long damn time. Yeah, it's actually he actually did how he he keeps updating it to to uh, it was oh. I'm very on brand for Matrix games to be selling twenty-year-old video games. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not even going to tell. Do you? Would you believe March twenty-fifth, two thousand and four? Were there even computers back then? I'm not convinced. I am not convinced. So yeah, that that definitely had it. Um, most of the other games. Uh, I'm trying to think. The other there there are two games here that I do not want to forget to mention. Uh, and one is a system, and it's a system by our friends, friends of the Armchair Dragoons, namely Shackos. They're, okay. 18, they're 1806, 1807, and now 1815 are all operational games with very strong fog of war and limited, and I say limited, operational supply elements. They are, they are more Euro-y. They have a Euro aesthetic. But they are war games, and they're very, very good ones that I am happy to be an owner of all three of. And uh, if anybody wanted a nice, light introduction, obviously all the games we're talking about here will tell you what we think, and I would certainly recommend Sucker to everybody. But these games by Shackos, they have a great table presence. They look really cool. Um, but in addition, they, they're they that new look sort of war gaming. 
uh, lots of card play, uh, blocks. Um, but one of the cool things you do is distribute strength and supplies behind a screen. You know, so there's always huh. limited intelligence between the two sides. I've played uh, 1807. Gosh. Any game in which I'm playing, there's going to be limited intelligence. Just because it's, <laughs> really it, it's, a, it's a game that is easy to get into and to enjoy. Related thereunto, I would, this would not be a good show if I didn't mention uh, one of the absolute classics of the form, Napoleon. Ah, yeah, the Tom Douglas game. Yep. Uh, this, is, this is by Columbia Games. Get the fourth edition. Ignore everything else. The third <laughs> edition was a galactic screw-up. Uh, the first edition's a classic. and I, well, I, well, first edition is Quantum. The second edition is the Avalon Hill version, which is nice. And I've got, but get the fourth edition, the deluxe version. You can get it for cheap. Um, That's the current one? What's that? That's the current edition? Yeah, 4E, yeah. yeah. Get the deluxe edition. You can buy the Kickstarter edition right off their website. It's got a slightly bigger board. It's got cool, it's got a few extra bells and whistles. It's a lovely, lovely game. And it is operational, simple, accessible, and it gives you fog of war. And like I say, to me, it's of a piece like, you know, Prometheus stealing fire. I'm, I've always, I, I'm just going to start saying from now on that it was Tom that was sitting around with a bunch of blocks at home and went, you know, if I put information on this and turned it on its side, you couldn't see it <laughs> and invented block games and their, their power of fog of war. Um, and so Napoleon fourth edition, the Shackos games, great examples that do have, uh, I won't say that Napoleon has supply because it doesn't. You have to protect your supply lines. You do have to protect that because uh, you that don't want to. You 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 will you will get trapped on a battlefield if you're you have no route of retreat. I, um, you know, to an extent though, I think that's that's a sufficient level of detail such that supply is a legitimate planning consideration as you are as you are thinking through the problem space of a commander in that era. That you you don't have to be overly concerned with do I have the right quantities of shot versus powder in the wagons do i have enough of the food wagons what do i do with field sanitation like all that crap you're not getting down to that level of minutiae but the idea that i can't just rampage about the board and not worry about how i'm going to get supplied right i've got i've got somebody to deal with those supply issues working in my camp somewhere but i've got to be able to keep the road open for him to move the supplies up and down i i think that is a a an appropriate and many times sufficient genuflection towards the idea that logistics matter in these games maybe it's just me Related topic that that is related to the to the topic of supply though is that starts to become a, a really significant factor in the operational level is attrition um, and a number of games including War and Peace and Library of Napoleonic Battle not the Library of Napoleonic Battle so much but the campaigns of Napoleon uh, have. Uh, where that's a really important feature of those rules where in uh, campaigns of Napoleon, you have, I, I might be getting the terminology wrong, but the sense of it is, is that you have a, you have command points and you can spend command points. And the more command points you spend, the farther you can move, but the farther you move, the, the, the harsher your, the attrition that you're going to suffer. Um, and it's actually a really neat way to build that in. And in War and Peace, you can uh, really small armies aren't subject to attrition, like really small armies. Bigger ones are, and it's a roll. You move, you see how uh, attrition goes. You could force march to potentially move one or two, I think, space 
space is farther, but your attrition will be higher. So, uh, and that relates to that, right? I mean, attrition was something that was really a, a huge factor in the Napoleonic Wars at the operational level and not just on the retreat from Moscow, yeah. where the entire French army essentially attrited to nothing, while Napoleon just went back to Paris. Well, and, 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 and once again, it's one of the things that, one of my main jobs in Flight of the Eagle when I'm running these games is each day there's fatigue calculation. And if you push your men too hard, I've had armies lose 15, 20% of their strength in a day, just vanish, you know, due to attrition, due to marching. I'll also observe with war and peace. Home. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, or, you know, they just straggle. You know, maybe they went off to steal chickens or, you know, they went off to woo the local folk. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but to 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 Artie's point about um, War and Peace, another neat little twist that Mark put in there all those years ago, and it's still in the new edition, when you're in Spain and when you're in Russia, there's a modifier on that role. Yep, yep. And if you're French, there's a modifier yes. in the opposite direction. So the French are better at not having as high attrition. Right. Living but everybody's worse in Spain and Russia. Yeah, but but still, it's it's a it's a role, and you will see people play. <laughs> you will see people play, uh, and it's and every strength point is significant. You'll see people have to take whole strength points off their stack just because they didn't manage attrition. It encourages you to to maneuver in a Napoleonic way. Yes, where you maneuver in discrete sub formations and you concentrate your forces for the battle. Yes, I I also yeah because if you think you're going to march that super stack into russia you are mistaken it'll be oh, it'll no. be no, no, it'll it'll yeah. be dead by the time they get to saint petersburg you know um or i suppose i should say to uh kiev kiev there you go Minsk. there you go yeah. i was gonna say somewhere in lithuania but um still, that's, going, that's, still going too far north yeah but no i think to me and and the other another game i would mention speaking of mark mclaughlin is his card driven games on the napoleonic wars i'm okay with the napoleonic wars the the big game, the sprawling game, I think it's silly, but I think it's a lot of fun. It's a big sloppy sandbox, really. Yeah. It's a yeah. lot of fun to play. It's got a lot of color, Napoleonic color. It's yep. not a strong historical simulation of the Napoleonic Wars from 1805 to 1815. Right. But if that's why you're playing it, you're playing the wrong game. Right. Was, wasn't that basically the, the Twilight Imperium of the Napoleonic Wars? Well, no, because it's oh Twilight Imperium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying Twilight Struggle. Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's no, probably no, right. The Twilight Imperium of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, it's it's big and 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 you know freewheeling. You can get all sorts of crazy alliances that don't make mm-hmm. a whole lot of sense in the terms of the yeah. history, but they they work well here. Uh, on the other hand, I think what is far better is Wellington, where he shrinks down the scope yeah. to the peninsula, and those are strictly operational. Yep, and and that game will learn you stuff about supply lines, about attrition, not just from the card play. Which oh, there are some cards that'll just when that card comes at when, <laughs> when the Spaniards are smiling, you know the French are about to get pissed because that that card is going to come out. And it's going to be bad. But no, that's a that's definitely a game that teaches you a lot about it. I Kutuzov isn't as good because I think the sides are unbalanced. But of those three, I think Wellington is the best game overall. But I also think it's the best historical representation of what happened. And it's a great operational game that gets at all of these issues. Fog of war, the uncertainty of it, attrition and supply. 
You just inadvertently wandered into something that I was going to try and steer us to here at this point in the conversation. So thank you for making the seg a little bit easier there. But we've talked a bunch about the 1809 campaign, obviously, because Jim, it's a favorite of one of, of yours. There are, you know, the, the Waterloo campaign, everybody's analyzed to death. The ill-fated march to Moscow and back, uh, I think everybody's seen the, uh, the, the famous giant infographic on it. But we hadn't talked much about the Peninsular War at all. And, and the fighting in Spain. And so you just brought up one particular game that happens to do a couple of things really well in that campaign. What are some of the other games of the campaign? Like, you know, you, you mentioned the Shagos games, 1805, 1806, 1815. Those aren't taking place in, in Iberia. You mentioned Wellington. What, if any, are some other games that folks might want to look at if those campaigns in Spain are something that interests them for either of you? <laughs> What would I say at this level? Well, I, certainly I would say Wellington. Go out and give it a shot. Uh, you will not be Especially disappointed. You already said it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't suddenly retract that. I actually think the Iberian scenario, the old wags yeah. tale on War and Peace was that the scenarios were great, but the grand campaign sucked. Yeah. They didn't fix it. It's not fixed. <laughs> it's... I, I, I think Mark is a is great it, guy. I think... I, I mean... I, I, and I love the guy that he... Tur- he actually turned over the grand campaign to another guy who took a hard swipe at it. And I think he... It's a it's a valiant effort. It's still not there. Um, but the Iberian campaign for War and Peace is really good. Um, okay. I would... I would offer that without hesitation. And I think that's generally agreed upon, too. That's generally called one of the better campaigns in there. And I... I'll back Jim up completely on this. The... The scenarios are great, uh, and and I think the new edition actually does improve on the game in a in a very simple but nevertheless impactful way. In that, you no longer have rivers running through the middle of the hexes. Oh my god! Which was a dubious <laughs> design decision originally, and for some reason, it just it just overcomplicates things. Because you have to have a special rule to say, okay, so if you're the initiator of the combat in the river hex, then you might be on this side of the river. The other guys are on the other side. It's like, what? Why not just put the put cross the river? Put put the rivers on the hex sides like everybody else does. Sparky. Yeah. So so that's a like a really small change, but one that like eliminates an entire dumb section of rules. Uh, but the campaign game uh, isn't really where you'd want it to be. Uh, I can attest to its bustedness. It's it's busted, unfortunately. Uh, War and Peace is at its best at, as an operational game rather than as a strategic game. Okay. Meaning playing the scenarios, not the campaign. Yeah. Um, there are two Library of Napoleonic games in this series uh, on this topic. Because the British buy them obsessively because they were there. Um, you've got Napoleon. <laughs> well, there's two invade- more volumes coming too. Yeah, you've got Napoleon invades Spain and Napoleon's quagmire. Yeah, um, those those two are both available. Napoleon's and Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah, there's yeah, a lot kinda, of- yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it was only half in jest. But by the, by the same token, and I'll—not that we want to talk about this, although I always will. I've—I've I've always offered the counterfactual: what if he doesn't invade Russia, makes basic peace with the Tsar, and leaves him alone, and commits those troops that he peels off to Russia to deal with Spain? So we could have a whole show about this. Okay, I'm going to point and clap back at that and say, sure. But if so, then that means Napoleon is abandoning the continental system, which was the big point of friction between Napoleon and the Tsar at that point. 
that resulted in the invasion of Russia in 1812. Sure. Um, and, you know, would it have been smarter of Napoleon to abandon the continental system? Yeah, because it wasn't really working anyway. Uh-huh. So we, we have to have some stipulations involved in that. But Napoleon and Alexander, was it Alexander II or Alexander III? Got along personally very well. That's why they had, they were, they were, they had a very warm relationship. Um, and well, just the political you, realities Charles, of it. Charles Esdale gives the lie to that. You need to read his latest book on the Napoleonic Wars, where he said he treated him respectfully, but he thought he was a putz. Hated him. Wait a minute. Napoleon thought Alexander was a putz? No, Alexander, Alexander hated him. Because remember, Napoleon always wants to marry one of Alexander's relatives. Well, right, right, right. And Alexander he has to, settle for, he has to a- settle for the Austrian lady instead. Right. That's why he, settled, he settles for Marie Louise, because he wants one of Alexander's sisters, and the queen mother... Is like you are not marrying my one of my daughters to that thing. And Alexander's like, there's no way. I'm not doing it, Ma. But what do you want me to do? I'm in the I'm in a cage with a tiger. I'm gonna treat it nice. I'm gonna say nice kitty while I reach for a stick. You know, and it's so it's I don't know, you know, but that's be that as it may, there are two um OSG and uh Library of Napoleonic Battle set in that era. And as or, yeah, Malcolm, well, the other contrafactual is: what if Napoleon doesn't try to put his incompetent brother Joseph on oh, the Spanish geez, throne? Well, I, yeah, I, so, I won't. Get, I'm going to walk so, away on that. Or because he's got Spain like he in his pocket up to that point. All he's got to do, he's got a perfectly useful dottered old man who will happily do whatever he tells him. All with, he had to with, do with an heir to the throne who is a literal slack-jawed idiot. Yeah, he's Cletus the slack-jawed yokel. All he's got to do is provide them all enough hookers and blow to get them to their graves, and they'll do exactly what they tell him, what he tells them. And he chooses not to. Why? Because he's got to put Joseph on a throne? Joseph Bonaparte. Really? That guy? Okay. Uh, yeah. Jim, seems like we did an entire episode on counterfactuals once many moons ago. I but not an, not an entire episode on Napoleonic counterfactuals. Aha! We certainly could have. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there's 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 an Handily. amazing, an amazing, you know, or just play the, just play the Napoleonic Wars and you'll have well, fodder forever. Well, I, yeah, I was gonna say you'll suddenly have Russians landing landing fleets in Kent. <laughs> you know, Kent, our, mighty, our mighty Russo-Spanish alliance has won this game. <laughs> I, I've seen that too. Well, that's why that game is a blast, right? Yeah, it's it like, is. It really is a lot of fun. Wait a minute. You just alive? What? It's, you, a, it's, you a, it's hard to take it seriously as a simulation, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. So no, I I would say that de- if you're interested in getting at some of the operational pieces of the Peninsular War, the Zucker games are a great start. I probably, yeah, I think I, I and I'm not sure. And this, I, okay, well, you tell me, Gary. Right now, if you were going out to buy it, and I suppose money is always an object. But if you had neither, would you buy War and Peace First Edition or Twelfth Edition, which is, I think, what we're on by now? I have, <laughs> I have, I have both of them. Well, so we're, we're only on the Twelfth Edition. Yeah. Uh, I think that so so bearing in mind the strengths of the game, the the so the the newest edition I think is out of print again from one small step. Yeah. So you would you'd be looking at at spending roughly a hundred and fifty dollars uh, to acquire a copy, and you'd probably have to spend a significant amount of time hunting. So bearing that in mind, and bearing the fact that in mind that you could probably score a punched copy of the Avalon Hill rules ver- version irrelevant. 
uh, War and Peace, I'd probably recommend to people the, uh, that they just run down a cheap Avalon Hill copy of War and Peace. I, I have one if somebody wants it kind of cheap. I'm willing there to you There you go. There you go. Wheeling yeah, and no, here I, on the Armchair Dragoons podcast. <laughs> I think that's Dragoons podcast and marketplace. Uh, I would, you know, I would definitely, well, I won't say definitely, but I say I was leaning that way, you know, and, and to sit down, because the other thing is the peninsular scenarios in War and Peace, they're on a single board. Yep. Yep. So they're very on one of those, small footprint. One of those standard. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? War at sea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a quarter of a standard war game sized map, roughly. Yeah. It's a little bitty thing. And, and it was, it's an afternoon. Yeah. It's got four or five counters, hours. Maybe the units are core. Uh-huh. So well, theoretical core. Yeah. Well, and it's, so, yeah, it's strength points. So it's, your you know. your your counter density is very light, and you'll get a simple introduction to the rules. It's a and but the other thing is, and boy, isn't this important? I think any good war game is going to do this. Although your point about rivers is well taken, it's a great introduction to the geography, which is so mm-hmm. important. It you know yeah. every war is predicated in some mm-hmm. respect on its terrain, but that is to a unique degree the case in the Peninsular War. If you you will sit there and struggle endlessly to understand why the French could never get their stuff together. And yes, Napoleon's not there. And yes, the the marshals will never stop being at each other's throats and acting like children. And yes, Joseph is a dullard. All true. But there's also a flipping mountain range in the middle of the country. (laughs) And what if Napoleon takes the conflict more seriously and is there personally more of the time, right? Yeah. That's a huge factor. He came in and won a a bunch of battles and then left. I'll just move that back a tiny bit. If he doesn't get word in, in what, February of 1809 that the Austrians are mobilizing and he realizes he's got to get out and go fight the Austrians, if he stays and doesn't pat Sue on the back and go, okay, you see these guys that we've been pushing? Just chase them all the way back. What happens yeah. then? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's a great, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. If the Kriegsrat in Vienna waits six months and lets Napoleon finish his business in Spain? Mm, it's a good question. And this that's is... Like, this is at the, the Austrians at the height of their operational prowess under Archduke Charles, too. Yeah. But that's where it's worth pointing out. Charles does not, uh, ends up getting sacked after the, after Wagram yeah. and, or, or after, he, he was not the overall commander after Wagram. Let me put it that way. And, well, and he's the best commander Austria has during the entire period. Well, in fairness, he quits. I mean, he knows it's a resigner be terminated because his because the emperor is going to basically side with him over his brother, who's also an idiot. Yes. And he never holds independent command again. That's uh, Aust- Habsburgs. There's a reason they had their own jaw. <laughs> well, it's it, it is and a it, slack jaw. It was the Span- the uh, Spanish monarchs were also Habsburgs. I will point out. Oh, yeah. But well, they're shoot. literally inbred congenital idiots. Well, take. I mean, all you got to do. It's it blew me away the first time I saw a painting of Charles V. Mm-hmm. You know, bear in mind, same family. This and this is three hundred years before. Same freaking jaw. Yeah, the fact that they never tried to freshen up the old gene pool and breed it out. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, it, it's very weird to go to the Vienna Military Museum today and to visit the Archduke Charles space kind of, which is a shrine. It's like, you guys treated him like crap, mm-hmm. yeah. but nope. You, if you go out to the Heldenplatz right outside, what, well, it's not right outside the museum, but it's in the Heldenplatz. What do you see? This gigantic equestrian statue of him from Osborne Esling. You know, you go inside the military museum, that standard that he allegedly, he didn't hold it aloft at the battle is now flagless and has a laurel wreath. And it's like a sacred totem. It's like, 
you guys didn't treat him that well in life. What are you doing? Yeah. You, you bl- blamed him for Vagram. You blamed him for Zanaim. And you basically, the Kriegstrat told him resign or be terminated. But he was nobility, so they couldn't, you know. And and he goes away and never commands again. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. And well, he didn't want to fight. And he didn't want to fight in spring 1809. Yes, he not, that's true. Ooh, he, he said, we're like, not ready. Yeah, yeah it's like. We're, we're you, trying to transform our army into something modern and less Austrian. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the ass kicking we took in 1805? <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do. I was. And by the I time might have got to 1914. They still hadn't fixed it. Yeah. So, no, no. Well, and to talk about things they don't fix. I mean, shoot. When you're, I've told the story that when you leave the um, the the area that's dedicated to Charles and wander into more modern Austrian history, it becomes a pan to the wars of of German unification, and you realize, oh, that's still fresh. At least among the military cast, that wound is still fresh. You know, yeah. so it's. Yeah, so they, they definitely don't sort that out. But no, I uh yeah, I would I would say War and Peace, um, the OSGs and and Wellington. Those are all good choices. So no, these are not necessarily uh the Peninsular War, but Another interesting fact is that a number of the older out-of-print, in some cases long out-of-print, campaigns of Napoleon operational games are really quite easy to find at a pretty good price. Uh, There's a couple that you probably want to stay away from, like the Struggle of Empires, um, because it's so goofy, but... Uh, there's a couple of the other ones that are pretty easy to get. 1807 is you could still get from Clash of Arms. Uh, the Eagles Turn East, which is what 1807, 1808. Yeah, uh, that's the Ilau Friedland campaign. Yeah, Ilau Friedland. That's that's a that's a good game too. Um, and uh, even the even the Waterloo one, the Emperor Returns. That's not very hard to get, even on eBay where you got lunatics trying to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. So and handsome games too. This Clash of Arms usually has good physical presentation, even if there's a errata longer than the actual rule book sometimes <laughs> yeah no there i i will say that when you look at when you look at those games they are they're of their time i i like the emperor returns probably the most very very handsome rick barber map too it is exactly that um in fact i might even happen to have an extra one on my wall just because i think it's the most lovely map of that campaign i've ever seen momentary um, digression was there ever a particularly ugly rick barber map that's a gary question not me can't think I, of I one can't think of so one. Th- there's i mean i've got you know people will complain about readability sometimes but that's different True, okay. from this is Usually, ugly which i've never really seen through them but I threw them. Those that, that legibility thing pisses me off. It really does. It's like he has an approach. You yeah. figure it out. You figure it out. What? And if if you've looked at his maps more than twice, you know exactly what he's doing every time. Yeah, yeah there, he's there got a really distinctive style, style of Rick maps. And if you don't like that style, you're not going to like any of the maps. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, and if you I mean, look, if you don't like it, that's fine. You know, that's that's you do what you. But don't this readability argument. I I have heard it. You're certainly far from the, you know, I know you're not making it out of the air, but it drives me nuts. And the only, the only thing we had an issue with was hex numbers in some games. That's, okay. that's pretty much it. Um, Rick, Rick did operate outside of his comfort zone, making maps from time to time. I'll point out the maps to Grant takes command as an obvious example um, where he's, he's making, you know, they hired Rick Barber to do Charlie Kibler maps. Right. Oh, uh, and yeah. he did them in Charlie's style, and they they look a little different, right? I mean, you could you could hold the that the next game up, and you could tell the difference, but but it's not Rick's style. One one that we looked at on the map show that we had a couple of weeks ago was uh, Edelweiss, um, which is a big old Clash of Arms 
game on the Cox's campaign. And that turns out to have a Rick Barber map that does not, isn't quite as immediately identifiable as a Rick Barber map. Uh, but when you start looking at it, you're like, yeah, this is a Rick Barber map. But no, it's, it's a gorgeous map, actually. It's yeah. very attractive. Yeah. So if there's an uh, ugly uh, one, I, I, I don't know where it is. One of the Rick Barber, you know, worship show there, but. We could have had uh, that as a show, too. Yeah. <laughs> and and Mike, right? We've still got another eight episodes at least to fill for this season. So <laughs> it's just tough to do it. See, Gary, it's easy for you guys to do a map show. You're on YouTube, right? A map show for a podcast is a little tougher. Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> little, but you could hungry. easily have a tribute to Rick Barber episode. Oh, I'm yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, look, we're, we're not afraid to do wacky stuff on the podcast, right? We did 90 minutes on dice on the podcast one time. So we're, we're totally fine getting off onto some wacky, wacky content there. As we're as we're rolling along here, we're a little over an hour by the time we edit out me saying um too many times and uh, and and us laughing at each other's jokes. Uh, we'll probably come in, you know, we'll save at least five minutes there. But as as we start to to roll towards the end of this, obviously we we've covered a lot of ground, um, kind of like Napoleon covered a lot of ground. And uh-huh. and as as we're looking at uh, sort of wrapping up some of those operational level issues uh, and considerations and things that matter in those campaigns, we led off with uh, fog of war was a big deal. Uh, the the idea of trying to join the battle and the preparation it takes to pull that off. And and we mentioned the logistical issues uh, early on. We've talked about a bunch of different games. Some do them well. Uh, we mentioned a few that do them poorly, but generally we don't want to talk about things we don't like, right? Why bother? Um, that said, in kind of wrapping up some of the things we've covered tonight, Gary, what are some some broad thoughts that you might have on this topic, considering where we've gone and what we've covered so far this evening? And what would you want to leave people with in in thinking of Napoleonic operational level campaigns so this is an interesting topic for a number of i mean it's interesting to me because i'm interested in it right but it's it's an interesting topic from the wargaming perspective in that for board war games it's it's not as richly populated an area as you might otherwise think um we have talked about war and peace quite a bit uh, which is very easy to get in any of its numerous editions um, we've talked about GMT's Napoleonic Wars, which is unfortunately not that easy to get, but eventually will probably be reprinted. It, it better be. Um, we've <laughs> talked about, uh, you know, in, in the slightly more grognardy sense, the, the Library of Napoleonic Battles and the Campaigns of Napoleon. Um, Library of Napoleonic Battles being an OSG thing and Campaigns of Napoleon being a OSG and a bunch of other publishers thing, including the, the I think two that Avalon Hill did. Um, so and, and some of those aren't particularly hard to get, although again, Struggle of Nations is something I'd want to stay away from. Um, another one, though, if you want to go a, a little opposite the direction of the, the, the super grognardy operational Napoleonics would be those Shakos games uh, that, that Jim pointed out. Those are well-regarded uh, they are attractive, uh, and they're indisputably war games, even though they're, they're kind of Euro-looky, but they're, they're like, definitely war games, right? It's, it's when you, you play it, it's not questionable. Uh, there's a lot more offerings in the tactical and or grand tactical Napoleonic space, though. Um, and even the Library of Napoleonic Battles is not a true tactical, is not a true operational series, right? It's, it's really grand tactical. Yeah. Right. Just so plenty of offerings here. I, I'm sure some in the audience are probably thinking, 
uh, are probably wondering why we didn't mention them, but where in your mind do the Labatt games live? Well, not in the Napoleonic space. That's why we didn't mention them. Well, no, I mean, yeah, those those are are ultra tactical. Yeah. Yeah. They are battalion level Napoleonics battles. So, and if that's what you're into, then that's, there you go. But you know that that just wasn't our topic for tonight that's why we didn't talk about it well yeah yeah i i I knew that you knew that but i'm trying to make sure that the audience might know and 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 if if we could have another show another topic idea if we is a hour of disrespecting labat so (laughs) i'm in i'm in i'll I'll be up for that (laughs) and it's funny because i played played, i've played a ton of it but i'm in just because i I, it is it's the, the one thing I will say about Labatt, especially given how Hexasim has approached it, it's like it came along and went, what are you all doing? Stop doing that. <laughs> no, we didn't mention that. We didn't mention the Eagles of France series either, because, again, it's a it's, it's really it's really a tactical. It's a higher level tactical game than Labatt. But it's well, we like, also didn't what, we, we, we didn't mention Wellington's victory. We didn't. We, true. You know, just, but, there's a lot at the tactical level we didn't mention. It's just the Labatt yeah. series is a known series. Out oh, there. yeah. Yeah. So no. We, and and Labatt is, is for the audience. Yeah. I will say if we do an if we do a show on on just, you know, picking on Labatt, um, it's going to be an hour before Gary takes a breath. <laughs> Possibly. Well, I don't know about that. It's That'd be nice. I, I get to sit back and listen to because I'd be curious to hear it all, actually. Well, I have, you know, which Labatt? Aha! Uh-huh. Yes. So, oh, my God. I, I will tell you, I, I see, I'll probably have to save it for that show. But I do remember it. It's a long time ago now. The first time I started realizing there were multiple, not merely rule books, but sort of line bloodlines of rule books yeah, for yeah. Labatt that I went, what the it, hell? It's the, it's the Linux of wargaming. Yeah, that's exact. That's, that's really good. That <laughs> I, I'm not, I can't beat that. So I'm going to stop. No, that's, that's actually super, a super accurate analogy. It's, yep. it's exactly if you, like If that. you know what the man's talking about, dead, that is dead on balls right there. <laughs> I've been chuckling about that for a week, man, at least. It, it is. The, uh, I, I also want to put in just the shortest pitch for a series that I've been very, very close to, as you know, for a very long time, and that is John Tiller's Napoleonic or Napoleonic campaigns on the PC. They are as close as you will ever get. I believe that. I believe I will die not getting any closer. I've now realized that. That's a that's a sobering realization to a board war game on the PC. That's what they are. And the biggest scenarios for all that game's limitations are operational. If you play the Waterloo Grand Campaign in that game, or if you play Jena Auerstadt, both of which I've done many times, uh, used to play Friedland, that campaign a lot. Those maps are gigantic. Uh, I, you know, I've never looked at the Napoleonic games, but I can verify that the, like, the big scenarios in some of those games are crazy big. And, the, for example, the Waterloo Campaign, I believe, is 392 <laughs> like- turns. Like the like the market garden scenario that starts on June sixth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it it. Well, it's kind of like um, Panzer Campaigns Normandy feet wet. Yeah, where you know I think it runs to 175 turns, and turns are 20 minutes. You know, <laughs> so it's like what? And it, it it they're they're almost concepts more than they are games oh i think grognard simulations is doing a platoon level waterloo game that doesn't i think they've 
Haven't they already done platoon level D Day? Uh, um, that's in progress, but yes, that's yeah. that is we, that's we the current would, big thing. We would there. be remiss if we didn't. We we do need to mention um, after the the very sad passing of John Tiller last year. The uh, John Tiller's games are now uh, being run by Wargame Design Studio, who were a yes. group of guys that were doing scenario design for Tiller and have now taken over the publishing of Tiller's older Wargame line. So even if you go to like JTS Software, or whatever their website you to be it redirects you to wargamedscom which is where the wargame design studio guys are hanging their hat and and they've got a, a nice new website where they are publishing and continuing support for all of those previous tiller lines of games not just the napoleonic ones but all of them the panzer campaigns everything else so if you go looking for the john tiller war games they're not run by tiller software anymore um that that's not really a thing at this point wargame design studio has taken them over and, and is continuing them but they're guys that were well connected to the the tiller bloodline of games all along so it's not like it's some interlopers came in and picked it up so this they didn't get Cosmo they didn't, taking over avalon hill you know they didn't get acquired by uh, a larger company nope okay i must be thinking of one no. of the many other acquisitions in video games yeah. that have occurred w, lately wds is the same two guys it's really one guy that it's always been um they came in and they released before Dr. Tiller's passing uh, a game that we actually demoed on a, a live broadcast um, back when they were do, when they were first coming out in the Panzer Battles series. Um, it was the North they, Africa one, wasn't it? That was the one, yeah. And they were also they were also very much involved early on with the World War One games, which I've said are the definitive treatments of World War One and the PC right now. Right. Um, the ta- you know at that level, they're, they're they're they can't be touched. The thing they've done and the, what makes them appealing. All of a sudden, I go to my email box, and because I've got them all registered through Tiller, I get free keys to all the updated games because they've done what they call gold editions, where they went in and they tweaked some of the UI. They actually did tweak the AI. They cleaned up scenarios, and they just sent you a free link to it. And so here you go. Have a whole free game. You know, we're not we're not even borrowing. We're not even going to patch it. We're just going to give you the executable for the brand new game so that you yeah. can start fresh with this new WDS setup. They are class top to bottom. And as I say... Um, one of the times that I had a, a delightful Waterloo campaign, 392 turns against a buddy of mine, we wound up having the big fight at Catch Rock. You know, we just had it in a totally different place. It does deal in a limited way with supply through cutoff and, you know, isolation and things like that. Fog of War. Fog of War is done only as a computer can do it, right? You yeah. don't see, the computer hides it from you until your troops can see it. So send out send out your skirmishers to go look, send out your cavalry to scout. Cavalry actually scouts like cavalry is supposed to do. You know, don't attack with that cavalry, you're wasting it. Go poke around, go look, tell me what you can see. Where's your opponent sneaking around? And they do all these things in a in a lovely elegant system that has been tweaked over time. Full disclosure, I've play tested half a dozen eight eight of those at least yeah i would think and and so uh easy to recommend so those scenarios do get to the operational level and frankly leipzig almost by definition is operational so there you go Yeah, we we asked Gary about wrapping up some I, i'm gonna throw in my one limited thought on on this 
again, Napoleonic's not really being my shtick, but Jim brought this up earlier and we never really got a chance to dig into it too much. But I think one of the things that I really like about the operational level games, be it Napoleonic's or, or literally anything else, is that battle doesn't have to happen there, right? Jim, you mentioned earlier, like one of the, one of the battles in one of your 1809 Kriegspiels is happening at Owl. And, and it doesn't have to happen at Egnul. It, it, it's weird to watch some of the larger operational games. This is particular true of American Civil War games. We talked about this, Gary, a couple weeks ago on, on a previous podcast. Folks sort of naturally gravitate to where those battles happened in the past, whether they should or not. Like Gettysburg makes sense that it happens there because it's a major crossroads. Bastogne makes sense because it's a major crossroads. Quattro is a times, big crossroads. Huh? Quattro is a big crossroads. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, there are other times where the battle sort of accidentally happens somewhere it didn't really have to happen there uh that that it could have happened somewhere else and and jim you've seen this in multiple different larger kriegspiels that you've run you've had guys fighting battles places that no battle ever occurred going back to like 200 bc that, that suddenly there's a battle there because that's where the guys end up as a part of the campaign and i think that's one of the interesting things to me at the operational level is finding ways in which things could have happened plausibly in many cases um, but didn't. And let's explore that space some. And that's that's something that that I find far more interesting in many cases than the tactical battles happening places where we know they happened, but we never really got to why they happened there. And so that's that's something that, that I find of, of interest in there. And so, Jim, with all of that, we're going to let you have the last word on, on operational level Napoleonics tonight. In, anything you want on the ground we've covered or the ground we didn't cover uh, up to this point? I you know come on in the water's fine um I, we've talked about a lot of games that i think are well worth exploring uh, most of which are still broadly available um you know not all but you know we, we haven't set you on a goose chase for a game that's going to cost you a thousand bucks you know frankly yeah. you can get like we said you can probably get a a war a player's copy of war and peace for 20 bucks yeah you know you know and you go I'm to bring and buy <laughs> you, you go to a you go to a bring and buy you'll get it for less than that <laughs> um you know so it's so there's games out there to play, games out there to try. I would not be me, however, if I said someday if you want operational warfare, which is where I think this lives. Uh, a couple years ago, I gave a talk with Doug at the uh, Origins War College about with the title of the talk was "How Big for Boney." You know, what's the what is the proper scale to war game Napoleonics if you really want to understand it? And I love the 1824 Kriegspiel, which is tactical, 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 tactical. That being said, I love the operational level. Play a Kriegspiel. If you want to know what it was like to be Napoleon or to be Davu, you need, or Wellington or, or, or Kutuzov, you've got to get to that level because you'll, you'll see and you won't see. You'll be frustrated. You'll be challenged. Um, one of the things we're doing in the 1809 uh, tabletop thing we're doing on Saturday Night Fights, one of my favorite moments in the four and a half hour extravaganza we had last Saturday was one of the things we're doing is uh, it's a big table that's parceled off into sections and I can reveal and cover each section as we go through it. And at one point a guy had marched onto the field and I said, all right, I'm going to show you. And I clicked it and he went, Oh, we're having a party over here. (laughs) And he had no idea that's where the fight was. He said he had no idea. And when that fog lifts and you do figure it out, you it's, it's personally exhilarating. It's exhilarating in the competition but it also gives you, it puts you in a very limited way into the shoes of these commanders 
and lets you see just that little bit more what sort of challenges they faced. And it also helps you understand the history more. It gets you down from your high horse. Why did that idiot do that? Let me show you. I'm convinced that Jim is going to adopt VR when he can watch the battlefield from the perspective of Napoleon on the horse on the hill down there on the table. You can already uh, use tabletop simulator in VR. Well, if you if you watch the video of when I accepted Grognard of the Year last year, I actually had my son started out with his VR headset um, on on a tabletop in tabletop simulator, and yeah. it is I've had him because I can't do it. Um, my vision doesn't work with that stuff. Uh, I've but I've had him do it walk around the battlefield at the height of a soldier and just try to get a sense of how well we're depicting topography and things it's uh yeah I I won't say that 13 year old Jim didn't go (laughs) (laughs) it's great it's fun it's it's very fun but no I hopefully folks will see these as opportunities I think these are these are all affordable accessible games and I encourage people to give them a chance All right. And with that, we will call it a night. So thank you, audience. Uh, Appreciate y'all being here. Uh, We've still got some connections online coverage coming up. We've still got some coverage of other uh, actual in-person game conventions. Now that those are starting to happen again, we're going to be talking about a few of those over the rest of this season. Uh, And so, you know, stick around and, and see what else is coming. Uh, maybe we will, in fact, give Gary an hour and a half to just sit there and slag on Labatt for a bit, um, and while the rest of us, you know, chew popcorn and watch, and uh, and and you know, come hang out with us. Uh, come check out Jim's Saturday Night Fights and and see what you can do for joining a game. Uh, he's also got games on Wednesday and Thursday, so it's not just Saturdays or bust. And and stop by and see what other games we've got going on with the Dragoons. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Mentioning Dispatches. Mm-hmm.